Would you join me? Let's ask Him for that. Father, we come as just your people. We come as people sitting here and joining online. And God, I'm asking that you would cause your help to take place so that we hear you this morning. Would you give us understanding in the things that you want us to understand? Would you make it practical? Would you make it real? Would you make it personal? God, so much so that for each person who would hear you, they would hear what you would have for them to hear. God, I can't do that, but you can. Please overcome and draw in and help us to hear your voice. We pray for that right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Daniel 11, where we are this morning, we want to talk about the abomination of desolation. Hey, those are big words. They're important words for us to understand, and they might not sound exciting. Like, that might not be like, well, it's really what I want to know about, but I want to tell you it is more practical and helpful than I could possibly put to you, and there's a message here that's worth hearing, even on a Mother's Day. I mean, I found myself thinking, abomination of desolation on Mother's Day. I'm not sure kind of where that lands, but I do know this. For every godly mother, if you could say what I'm trying to say, when we get to the nugget of it, it's exactly what you would communicate. It's what we desperately need to hear. Well, with that, I need to take a moment and set the context just a little bit. We're diving right into the middle of chapter 11, but chapter 11 finds itself in the midst of a vision that runs from chapter 10, verse 1, to the end of chapter 12. It's one long section where Daniel has this incredible experience where he gains a vision of what's to come. So let's put it into perspective this way. We think about it, it began in Daniel chapter 10 when Daniel is crying out, asking God for what's happening in the, in the midst of his nation, and he gets this incredible vision that begins with the vision of Jesus, and then an angel comes and begins to show him both realities happening behind the scenes, but then begins to unpack history for him. Now, important for us right now is we know when that happens. Yeah, in chapter 10, verse 1, it tells us it's in the third year of King Darius, and said simply for us right now, that takes place in 536 B.C. That's when Daniel gets this. As an older man, kind of near the end of his life, he gets this vision. Now, in the midst of this vision, it carries him to this moment that we want to talk about this morning that is known as the abomination of desolation. Why don't you notice it with me in verse 31, if you can, for a moment. It says, and forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, and they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Well, we know what this is. This happened in history. This took place in 167 BC when Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Syrian, you know, kind of king, comes on the scene and he brings in this incredible, horrible place where he steps into Jerusalem, goes up into the Temple Mount, defiles it, places, you know, sacrifices a pig on the altar, places an altar of Zeus, and tells the people of God that they can no longer know God that they are to be a Greek people, and he seeks to destroy and eradicate anybody who's seeking to follow God. It's one of the darkest moments in human history, and certainly in the people of God. That's what he's talking about here, this place that we call the abomination of desolation. Well, Daniel got a chance to see that coming. If you were with us last week, we got a quick overview of history. 
that Daniel, seeing it in 536 BC, he gets a glimpse that takes him 369 years in his future, seeing what he would never see in his earthly life, getting a chance to see both how history would flow and what would happen, and leading to this moment. It was an incredible journey. It's a journey of seeing that, and again, we talked about that last week. If you missed it, you might want to get there. But what we need to understand is that gets to this verse in chapter 11, to this thing that we know is the abomination of desolation, and it literally happened. A horrendous, horrific moment in history where he seeks to oppress this. Antiochus comes on the scene and oppresses the people of God in an incredible, ugly destruction. So it's done, right? It happened, except Jesus comes on the scene And in Matthew 24, when he begins to speak about history and begins to tell us what's coming in the last days, he says it's going to happen again. Yeah, in Jesus speaking, Matthew 24, he says it this way, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. So Jesus comes on the scene, and he tells us this thing, this abomination of desolation, this one who's going to stand in the holy place there in Jerusalem in the Temple Mount, it's going to take place again. So again, just kind of putting it in perspective, Jesus comes on the scene, it's 200 years later. It's 200 years after Antiochus had had come on the scene and done his horrendous thing, but Jesus says, it's going to happen again. And he pictures that which we would understand biblically, that he talks about one who is going to come that maybe biblically know best as the Antichrist, that he's going to come on the scene and do it again, bring in another abomination of desolation, bring in another incredibly destructive moment into human history. Now, Lots of places we find that. If you're wanting to read more about it later, you can read maybe Revelation 13, where it unpacks a lot of this, where the Antichrist comes on the scene and demands that the whole world worship him, that he defies everything that is God and defies all the people of God in a horrendous way. And again, that's going to take place. Now again, just think through this kind of a time-wise. That means, as we think about it now, that happens, you know, from the time of Christ to now into the future, at least 1,992 years after Jesus spoke this. So we're looking at this incredible span of time where we're thinking about these things. Or maybe let's come back and say it another way. Here's what I need you to understand. The abomination of desolation. It is past and its future. It's past, it did happen, it's future, it will happen. So let's put it together like this and try to wrap our brains around it. In other words, we have a section here in Daniel 11 that has more than one fulfillment. Now, that's not uncommon biblically. I don't have time to kind of dive deeply into that, but it's not uncommon that when God does prophecy that sometimes some prophecies have a dual fulfillment, that it's not just fulfilled once, it's fulfilled twice. So the same section can have two applications, and that's exactly what's happening here. And again, we know that because Jesus says so. He says so. Now, that raises a bunch of questions. It's a bunch of questions because we're walking through this scene. We're trying to think about what's happening. We're trying to think about where it works. And if you're tracking, that means when Daniel begins his vision in chapter 10 up to verse 35, that's history. Again, if you were with us last week, we walked through it. It literally happened exactly the way that God describes it. It is past tense for us. It was fulfilled. 
But something happens. As we look past this, beginning in verse 36, none of this yet is fulfilled. That all of what, from verse 36 to the end of the chapter, and into chapter 12, it's all future. Now, that's a fascinating thing, and we'll come back and talk about this a little bit next week, but I want to just allow you to kind of begin to process it, because one of the questions you have to ask is like, well, why is God communicating it this way? Why were we looking at history, and then all of a sudden, we kind of fade out of, the, of that time, and we fade into the future, and yet there's this place of seeing that, and, and what is it we're supposed to learn from that? Well, again, that will be something we talk about next week, but today. Today, we want to single in on this time, this place that is dual fulfilled, this thing that's known as the abomination of desolation, and we want to do our best to try to at least understand a little bit of what's there, and I want to tell you why. See, I think about it this way, why should you even care? Why should you care about this thing that's known as the abomination of desolation? Well, it's in the Bible, so I mean, if if God wants you to know it, you should know it. But let's just be honest. Here's the thing. If you're a follower of Jesus, you were not there when Antiochus came in 167 BC. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not going to be here when the Antichrist comes on the scene. Now, I solidly believe in the rapture of Jesus Christ, that the Bible kind of tells us that before the Antichrist makes his move in history, that the church of Jesus Christ is going to be taken out of this world. Now, I believe that. And so if you're going to grab that with me, that means you're never going to see this personally. Well, that might make it all the better. Like, well, why do I want to know? (laughs) Like, why do I want to know something that I'm not going to be there for? Well, though you were not there when Antiochus was here, and you will not be here when the Antichrist comes on the scene, there is something to learn, not just about the Antichrist, but about Antichrist, kind of little a. Not the, the Antichrist, but little ones. Yeah, I can give that to you biblically. John would give it to us this way in 1 John chapter 2. He says, little children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. He says, we're in these days, this final section of human history, and you heard it. There's this man coming. He is going to be the epitome. He's going to be the full measure of Satan's kind of work, kind of just representing all that Satan is going to come into the world. He is coming. But then he says this, even now many antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. Yes, there is one who's coming who is that, but even today there are little antichrists, those who kind of step into that same role in a lesser measure, but altogether real. Or let's say it a different way. So Paul would say it this way in 2 Thessalonians, he describes the abomination of desolation in these words. He says, the man of sin which is the Antichrist, that's another title for him. The man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Since this man's going to come, he's going to come, and he's going to tell the world, I'm the answer. I'm the solution. I am God. I'm the one that you need to believe. That's the abomination of desolation. That's what he's going to do. Well, we think about that description, and he tells us this, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. 
quick measure, I think that's speaking of us. I think it's speaking of the Holy Spirit in the church, that we are the restraining influence in this world, holding back God's judgment until we're taken out of the way. And, and, and then this one is going to be revealed. But don't mistake what Paul just said. It's not that it's not present in our world now. This mystery of lawlessness is already happening in our world. This work that's going to be, you know, kind of run to full measure, that's going to be fully expressed in this man of Antichrist, it's present now. This mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And then the lawless one, which is another title for the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Jesus comes back riding on a white horse. He wins. Satan loses. Antichrist loses. Hey, we'll talk about that more in the next couple weeks, but we get the chance to see that. But as he's telling all of us this, Paul says it simply this way. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. So this one who's coming, this Antichrist, this man of sin, this lawless one, he's going to come, and what he's going to do is fully just exemplify and show what Satan's intending to do in the world, that what Satan does, this man will fully represent. Now, if you can grab that with me, the important point for you and I now is that Satan's actually working today. I mean, he's actually an enemy real in our world. So if you can see the Antichrist, you can see what Satan is doing now, that his work in this is something that we get a chance to kind of gaze at. So it becomes something that's very, very applicable, that to understand the abomination of desolation is to get a glimpse into some of the battle and the reality that's happening in our world, but ultimately to get the greatest help we can in facing it. That's where we want to go this morning as we want to think this through. Okay. So that sets the groundwork. That helps us to understand a little bit where we are going. Let's give it a quick definition. So abomination of desolation. It's kind of an interesting term, and I don't even know if that just immediately just rings across your heart or, or what that does or what you even think about when you hear that description. But let me give it to you in a kind of a simple way, though it's obviously far more uh, just involved in this. When they use the term abomination, it is first and foremost the idea of blasphemous blasphemous in the sense that it's an insult and a declaration against God. It's destructive. It's this thing that's detestable, disgusting. But this idea, when it's abominable, it's the idea that in God's eyes, it is incredibly offensive. It's a direct attack against Him. That's the idea of abomination. It is something that is directly insulting, attacking God. It's something that does that. But it is something that brings in destruction a desolation. It's a shocking destruction. This idea of desolation has two kind of aspects to it. One of them is that idea of shock, that kind of like, wow, like if you could see what that does. But it's so horrible. It does in something that devastates lives, devastates souls, does this horrible work. And so that's what we're talking about. Something that is this, that is destructive. It is this work that Satan seeks to do. It is an abomination of desolation. And again, what I'm telling you is if you can see that, then you'll see again, not just what is coming, but you get a glimpse into how Satan is working today. And that's exactly what God gives for us here. He gives us a glimpse of what that looks like. So I'll tell you what, let's look at it. Let's just read through it just so you can kind of feel it. And then we'll unpack what's there. 
Begin with me there in verse 29. At the appointed time, he shall return and go to the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter, for ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore, he shall be, he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So he will return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, and they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he will corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. Okay. In these verses, he describes for us this section of time, this abomination of desolation that did happen, will happen, but one more time gives us a picture of what Satan is doing now. So what did he just tell us? Well, it began by letting us know that the way that this man is going to come on the scenes, it tells us back in verse 21 that he came on the scene at the end of the verse, it says that he seizes the kingdom by intrigue, that he comes in by lies. That actually permeates this whole section, and it's worth just quickly noting it. That the way all of this happens, the very idea of an abomination, is a lie that's attacking the very truth of God. In fact, you think about what we already saw there in Thessalonians when it describes it for us, that the lawless one is coming according to the working of Satan with power, signs, and notice, lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Said simply, it's a lie. That's what Satan does. That's his tactic. That's the way he works into this. No surprise in one sense. In fact, Jesus would say it this way. The devil does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and he is the father of it. See, I don't know what you think of. I don't know when you think of Satan and you talk about the Antichrist and I'm trying to talk to you about his work in the world. I don't know if you think about this in some kind of weird mystical or voodoo or I don't even know. Understand this, it's a lie. Satan was a liar in the beginning. It's what happened in the Garden of Eden. It's what happens all the way through history. And so Satan's biggest work always comes with deception. Should not be a surprise to us. It should not be shocking to us. We should almost expect it that that's how Satan works. He lies and his lies come. But they're not just lies generically. No, he has a rage. He has an anger that is manifesting himself against God with us or said differently against the holy covenant. Yeah, why don't you just notice it with me so we can see it in the verse. We read it a moment ago, but go back and read verse 28. It says, And while returning to his land with great riches, his heart will be moved. And here's where I want you to catch it. His heart shall be moved against the holy covenant. And so he shall do damage. And then it says it again in verse 30. For the ships of Cyprus shall come against him, therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant, and do damage. Hey, you just need to hear it. There's a rage. 
there's an anger that the Antichrist is going to show, and it's an anger that's very specifically directed. It's directed against this holy covenant. What's a covenant? Well, a covenant is a relationship, almost a contractual relationship. Much we could say in that, but when the Bible talks about it, it's the way that God makes a a covenant with us. Let's just cut to the chase. If you're a follower of Jesus, God has made such a covenant with you. Jesus would tell it to us this way when he gave us the celebration of communion. He took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. He says, my blood is shed so that I could give you a covenant relationship with me, uh, an unbreakable contract, a relationship with him where we have a relationship based on this covenant of what Jesus has done for us. It's an amazing reality. It's a description of what God has done, why God sent Jesus into this world. It's amazing. Satan hates it. He hates it. The Antichrist is going to manifest that he has a rage It's not just a rage against humanity. It's not just a rage against goodness. It's a rage against God's covenant. It's a rage against this this love relationship, this contract that God has, has worked in lives to bring to salvation, and He has it. Now, that's always that way. It's in our world today. The mystery of lawlessness is already there, so Satan is always this way. It shouldn't be a surprise. There is this place where he does this, where there's this anger, but it's very specifically expressed. Wow. So that's helpful. That's helpful to begin to understand. So how does that manifest? What does he do with these lies and this rage very specifically here? How does that work its way into an abomination of desolation? Well, here in this text, it lets us know that there are really three tactics that the Antichrist will do, that Antiochus Epiphanes did do, that would seek to bring in this lie and this rage against God's people. What are they? Well, the first one, we already saw it. Notice it there in verse 30. For the ships of Cyprus shall come against him, therefore he shall be grieved and return and rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Hey, his first tactic is to encourage people, walk away. Walk away. Walk away from God. He'll honor worldliness. He'll honor people, encouraging people, hey, pull back from God, move away from Him. Antiochus did this in 167 in a horrendous way. He came into Jerusalem and in a sense said, hey, this whole thing about knowing and following God, you're done. You're going to be Hellenist now. He really began to bring in a Hellenization culturally where he basically said, you're going to give up your whole relationship with God. You're going to live as people of the world and move into all of those things. That's what he did. It's exactly what the Antichrist is going to do. It's a place where he looks on those right now so that Satan always has this work where he's trying to encourage people. Move away. Quit going to church. quit quit being near God. Don't move away from this. It's not surprising that it's a part of our world. It's not a surprise that that's a satanic agenda. That's exactly what he's doing. But he has a second tactic. Not only is he encouraging those who would forsake God, who would forsake that holy covenant, it goes on to tell us there in verse 32, it says, those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. Hear it again. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he'll corrupt with flattery. 
So his first tactic was to tell the people, hey, you should leave this. His second tactic is similar but different. So he's going to find people who are already living in disobedience. They're, they're already, they look at God's covenant and they've chosen to live in rebellion against his covenant. And he's going to flatter them. And he's going to tell them, you're fine. You're good. It's an interesting thing. In some ways, it's actually very, very different. It was a place where he came and didn't encourage people to move away from religion, but to stay there. But he encourages a hypocrisy. He encourages a place where he basically tells them, you could stay in that space and you're fine. Antiochus did this in a really horrendous way. He moved into Jerusalem, came in, he removed all the godly people out of the priesthood. He placed his own people in there that really got into power by money, kind of bribing to to get their positions in power. He corrupted it in such a way that even those who were trying to kind of, you know, have some semblance of godliness found this corrupt and, and just horrible place. And it was a tactic that still works to this day that Satan would step into the place, and instead of, you know, kind of telling people you should quit going to church, he, he specifically likes to encourage people who are living in rebellion. And it's a place where Jeremiah said that the false prophets would come and tell those who were living lives in disobedience, and just say, hey, peace, peace, to those who have no peace. That he would come and say, oh, you're fine. You're fine. Just, you're, you're fine. You don't need to change. You don't need to repent. You don't need to stop sinning. You know, you don't have to do that. Like, that's crazy. You know, you, you're fine. And so it created an entirely different atmosphere. Well, that might make more sense in a moment, but let's add the third. So he has two tactics. His first is to encourage people to walk away. His second is to flatter those who are living in disobedience. When those don't work, his third is really to bring in a very harsh persecution. Yeah, we read it, but you might just note it in verse 35. And some of those of understanding shall fall. To refine them and purify them and make them white until the point of uh, the time of the end because it is still for the appointed time. So he begins to unpack this idea of persecution, that these, he's going to bring this place where those who are trying to do what's right will fall under his rage, and they will do so for many days. Now, he gives us a pretty good picture of persecution. Now, maybe it's not true of every persecution, but it is certainly true of this persecution in these times that are our abominations of desolations, happened in 167 BC, will happen in the end, does happen in the midst of it. So let me just kind of quickly point out a couple of things, and we could dive in deeper, but I think it will be enough to understand. For starters, he says it's going to happen for many days. That as he lays it out there in verse 33, you might just notice, and those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame and captivity and plundering. Let it just roll across you just for a moment that God is going to allow it to happen for a space of time. It literally happened under Antiochus. In fact, in Daniel chapter 8, he specified exactly how long. He says it would happen for 2,300 days. It's just over six years. He says, okay, Antiochus is going to come on the scenes. He's going to bring in his corruption, and he's going to oppress, and he did so for around six years. That's That's a long time. I mean, just to have to endure that, but he says that's how long it would happen, and so it was a period of time that would be there. In the midst of it, he says, okay, they're going to fall, and the fall would happen in different ways. It would be sword, 
maybe violence, and maybe it was official violence or maybe not official, just people kind of taking matters into their own hand. There would be fire, most often that being kind of a judicial thing where they actually killed and, and destroyed people. It would happen not only by sword, by flame, it would happen by captivity and plundering, that people would be put into jail and they would be fined. Now, those tactics of, of persecution are actually very, very common. We could talk about history. We could talk about what the church goes through. We could talk about Christians who face that. But it's, again, worth our noting that as he's describing this specific type of persecution, these are the kinds of things that would happen to God's people. Now, he gives them a couple of pieces of encouragement that's worth quickly noting. He says in verse 34, Now, when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help. This is probably not speaking about God's help specifically. We're going to see that. God's going to offer that in a different place. It's probably talking about that there will be some small places, that oftentimes where there is big persecution, there ends up being, if you will, an underground railroad. It ends up being people who look upon oppression and sometimes will seek to help, and, and that there would be places that people would be able to survive that space, which would happen in Antiochus, will happen again under the Antichrist. At the same moment, God highlights another part of the problem that's incredibly hard. It says, now that when they fall, verse 34, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join them by intrigue. Intrigue. That's the term that was used back in verse 21 to speak about Antiochus. It's a lie. One of the hard things that happens in times of persecution is that actually is something they had, you know, have to deal with. Both people who are willing to help them and others who would be kind of lying to get in there and find this underground church and find what's happening to bring in harm. And without spending a bunch of time on it, that's exactly what happens in such seasons. That's exactly what happens. Well, he gives us all of that, and he tells us in verse 35, and some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. That last phrase, this idea that it's going to keep happening till the end, till the point of the end, is at least helpful. It helps us to understand something. So I'm talking to you quickly about persecution, and one of the things that is true is that did happen, does happen, and simply put, is going to continue to be a part of our world until the end. I don't know why I just need to kind of emphasize that, but I kind of have a sense that sometimes we live in this place in America where we haven't endured much persecution, and so sometimes we almost have this, well, like we've outgrown that, right? I mean, we're smarter than that now. We're, we, we don't want to let things like that happen. No, it's happening around the world, and it could just as easily happen here because it's not going to stop until the last days. Now, lots of stuff we could talk about that, but at least to understanding, hey, that's a part of it. That's a part of the world. So he's letting us understand that. So we get a glimpse here of what days look like that are abominations of desolation, which again, help us to understand because this one who's coming, this lawless one, is, do, is working according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. That if you can see it, then you understand this is what Satan always does. Yet in his heyday, in his great moments of strength, it's, it's seen to the highest level of kind of just places where it's seen, but it's always there. So again, that's kind of what I need you to feel with me just for a moment, because I want you to kind of understand that we think about this, that these are things that are a part of our, our, of our world, that I could tell you, I could walk you through history. 
And I could tell you of Antiochus Epiphanes, and I could tell you everything that's happened here, it happened just like that. I could tell you in days of the Antichrist, it'll be that way. But I could also tell you that if you know history, then you would know, you know what, John's right. There's been a bunch of Antichrists. There have been a bunch of places where if you could look at history and you would say, okay, that was almost a moment where Satan seemed to have a heyday in the world. It happened sometimes under Roman emperors. Roman emperors came on the scene, and for many of them, both oppressing Jews, but also Christians. Emperor Domitian comes on the scene, and he seeks to intentionally destroy Christianity from the world. And he actually makes a proclamation that he did it. He destroys every Bible, burns every Bible, destroys every, you know, he, you know, makes it illegal to be a Christian, makes it illegal to be a follower of God, and he celebrates, I did it, you know, I've destroyed Christianity from the, from the world. He does exactly this. He encourages people to go away. He allows kind of a false uh, measure of things to happen there and persecutes anybody who won't do that. Antiochus did all of those things, where he encourages people to move away, he kind of allows this false religion, and he kills tens of thousands who won't listen. I mean, he does it. I could take you through history. We could go to Adolf Hitler. I think anybody who would know history, can I tell you, he was an abomination of desolation. I mean, he, he wasn't the one because he, he hasn't come yet, but if you know history, you can say he was exactly that. He came on the scene there in Germany, and he encouraged people with radical measures to move away from church. He made it illegal to take children to church. He made it illegal to, to bring up children in church. He did everything he could to, to stop people from gathering. But then he went the other way too, kind of if you can't beat him, join him. He did allow an official church, a Reich-sponsored church. But to be a Reich-sponsored church, you had to basically expose, just say the same things the Reich was saying. You could, you could gather on Sundays, but you couldn't say anything against what they believed. And so there was this church that existed in Germany, but it was corrupted. But the true believers, they, they resisted, and they died. They, six million Jews were killed, and literally millions of Christians were killed. People who stood against this, and with incredible oppression, he came. And so I just want you to see it and say, hey, this happened. I mean, this has exactly worked this way. And, and, and to see that and then to recognize, hey, it's still so much a part of our world. Now, as I say this, I want to say it this way. And, and I want to be really clear about this. Boy, I'm not a prophet. I don't know where we are right now. I don't know where we're going. I do know this, that all of these things are active today. The mystery of lawlessness is work. This is always what Satan's encouraging. But sometimes I look at our generation right now and I wonder, either we're heading really close to the, the end times where the Antichrist is coming on the scenes or God's going to seem to allow us maybe to head towards one of these spaces. Again, I'm just giving you my personal opinion. You don't have to agree with me. But sometimes I find myself feeling like if you've ever been there in the ocean and you step out there in the ocean and, and, and the, you, you begin to feel like the current move out, like the, 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 just pulling away and you begin to recognize there's a really big wave coming. You know, there's just the, you, you can almost feel it building behind that. That's kind of how it feels right now. It kind of feels that way where I can tell you this, that when we think about these things, it looks so much this way. Our world is encouraging people to abandon God. It's happening in college campuses. It's happening in media. It's happening on television. There's a wholesale encouragement from our world and our world here in America for people to abandon truth. At the same moment, there's a corruption that would happen. So at the same moment, there's an encouragement for anybody that would forsake biblical truth 
for a worldly truth in a Christian guise. So you'd have people that, you know, maybe would embrace, you know, same-sex marriage or gender kind of confusion and all of those things. And so the weird thing is that you're going to have people that say they're Christians, but they're saying the same thing the world is saying. They're, that they're saying the same thing, and, and, and the world's like, hey, you, yeah, you can be a church as long as you say what we say. And yet, I'm just telling you, it feels that sometimes it's moving in a, in a different direction. So that those who would say, hey, I want to stand, it could be very difficult. Are we on the cusp of persecution here in America? I don't know. Maybe. So much of the other world is facing it. Maybe we are as well. So it's with that that I just want to talk to you about, you know, what do we do about that? So, I mean, like, this is, like, not great news. Let's just be like, so, Jim, this is kind of really discouraging. <laughs> like, like, abomination of desolation, like, bummer. Like, that's just, like, sad. It is sad. It, yet, in these verses is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Definitely the favorite verses in the book of Daniel because he's going to tell us how to resist. He's going to tell us those who look on all of this, like how do you not fall prey to what Satan is seeking to work in the world? Notice with me, pick it up there in verse 32. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt. The Antichrist, this one who's going to come, he's going to corrupt them with flattery. But the people who know their God... Yeah, catch it with me right now. I love these kinds of interjections. This, you know, but in, in spite of everything we're talking about, inside of everything that's there, there's something that lives in contrast to it. There's going to be a people, a people who aren't going to fall to the Antichrist ambition, who aren't going to find themselves devastated in these abominations of desolations. And he tells us who they are. He says, but the people who know their God. That's what makes this so beautiful. God says, you want to be able to resist. You want to be able to overcome. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to tell you the secret. I'm going to give you the, the greatest piece of advice I could possibly give you. If you know your God, then, then you won't fall prey to anything that is there. And oh my goodness, I wish I could say this better. I'm just telling you right now, this is one of the reasons I love this so much because right here we get one of the great truths that are found all the way through Scripture. I mean, this isn't a side issue. This is the main issue. I could talk for literally hours right now telling you how good this is, that when he talks about knowing God, it's not just a thing, it's the thing. In fact, we could say it this way. It's really what Christianity is. What true Christianity is, it's knowing God. Jesus said it this way. When he was praying for us in John 17, he says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I love this. Jesus just gives us a definition. He says, this is eternal life. Eternal life, just, it isn't just duration. It's reality. It, it, it's, it's, it's true knowing. He says, here's what it is to have eternal life. It's to know God. This, so we can take John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son into the world that whoever believes him would have eternal life. Eternal life isn't just duration, it's quality, it's relationship. It's an idea that to know God, it's, it's the essence of everything that we are. So much so, that when Jesus talks about those who aren't saved, he would say, in a sense, they don't know him. 
I think in one of the most scary verses in the Bible, Jesus speaks about it in Matthew 7. It says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And in Matthew 7, he pictures a group of people that think they're going to go to heaven because they went to church or they knew things, they, they, they knew facts. And going to say, but I didn't know you. I didn't know you. I mean, that, that's, that's not how this works. And I want to tell you, if I could get there closer, I could tell you this answers a thousand questions. People ask me all the time, you know, like, so, hey, Jim, so-and-so goes to this church or they're part of this denomination. Are they going to go to heaven? You know, is that, is that how it works? And, and it's a weird way to ask it. I mean, there are things that are truth being taught, not truth in other places. But the essence to that question is always if they know Jesus. I mean, just because you go to the right church or even a wrong church, I mean, sometimes God could work in the midst of it. It's a relationship with Jesus. What saves us, what salvation is, it isn't a religion. It isn't about a church. It's about actually having a relationship with Jesus. And so that defines everything. I mean, this isn't just a side issue. It's the fundamental issue of life, that the great thing that we need is a relationship with God. Not only does it define Christianity, can I say it this way? It's the most satisfying thing in all of life. Paul the Apostle would say it this way. He says, yet I indeed count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. It's a really cool phrase. Um, He says, you know what? Nothing else really even comes close. I count everything else as secondary, as loss to the excellence. And the word excellence there, it's a really cool word that if you were to try to translate it maybe into English, it would have the idea of super massively surpassing, like it blows doors on anything else. He says, knowing Jesus, knowing God, it leaves everything else in the dust. He says, here's what I figured out. I have a relationship with Jesus and everything else is secondary to it. It's the thing that satisfies me. It's the thing that brings life to me. It's everything that I need that, according to Augustine, our our hearts are restless until they find our rest in him. I mean, it's him that we need. And that relationship not only defines us, satisfies us, it rescues us. So that James would say it to us this way, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Satan's real, his work is real, you want to beat it, draw near to God. Resist him, (laughs) submit to God, and if you do so, he'll run away. He'll flee because your relationship with God is your rescue. Your relationship with God becomes that that becomes that which saves. Your relationship with Him becomes that that brings in the greatest help possible. And I'm just telling you, this is better than I could say it. I wish I could press it in before you right now, because I'm telling you right now, God is giving it to us in such a a small package, but it's such an amazing package. Because if you can see the abomination of desolation, it should be just a little bit scary. Like, that's scary. Like, Satan is real, and man, it's, it's lies and, and, and deception and persecution. Like, how do you face that? If you know God, then you are rescued. Can I use a, a silly illustration? It's not an uncommon one. You've probably heard about it. Maybe you've heard the fact that, you know, when we think about dealing with counterfeits in our world, that oftentimes uh, the FBI and, and banks often in training people to recognize counterfeits, you know, they will tell them that the key to recognizing a counterfeit is not knowing a counterfeit. It's knowing the real thing. Now, again, that's a great illustration, but I just want to tell you it's really, really personal. See, for me, back before I moved here to Roswell, I used to oversee and, and both worked in and later kind of supervised a section in a bank in Albuquerque, and that's what we did. We handled cash, literally millions of dollars. 
because we handled so much money, we found counterfeits every single week. It was just common. But as we kind of trained people in that, we, had, we hired a new clerk or a new, a new cash worker, you know, and we began to train them, and we'd tell them, hey, we're looking for counterfeits, we would tell them this very thing. So how do you find a counterfeit? You know the real thing. Just told them to get used to it. Get used to the feel, get used to how it works, get, get used to the look, get used to it. And we'd tell them this, you know, once you get used to it, you'll be counting money, and all of a sudden you just have something in your hand and be like, this feels wrong. Like, and then we tell them how to spot a counterfeit. Because the problem about teaching somebody to find a counterfeit is counterfeits blow it in dozens of different ways. They don't all blow it in the same way. So you can't just like, hey, this is what a counterfeit looks like. We just tell them once you kind of had that, like, this feels weird. Then we tell them about ink and, and paper and, and how to look into it. To really, Is this really a counterfeit? But the key was that we told them, hey, the, the, the real thing that will help you is if you know the real thing. And I just want to tell you that's what God is telling to us here. Hey, Satan's a liar. <laughs> the abomination of desolation is coming, and it's a part of our world even now. But if you know him, if you know him, there's rescue there so that you, you would be rescued from all of this, and this is incredibly helpful. Now, in this, I just want to tell you, he gives us some practical outflows. I just want to touch it briefly, but he tells us four things that would happen out of it. But please hear me clearly. What we're going to quickly talk about are not the aims, they're the results. For people who know their God, especially in really difficult days, there are things that that knowledge of God would do for them. What things? Well, he gives us four things. Go back again there to verse 32. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he, the Antichrist, shall corrupt with flattery, but the people who know their God shall be strong. They'll have strength. In fact, it's a passive idea, so we might say they'll be strengthened. That knowledge of God, that relationship with God, gives them the strength to handle the life that they're living. That is always the case. Paul would say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus would tell us, hey, if you abide in me, you'll be able to bear good fruit, that the relationship we have with God is the place of our strength, that the ability to handle the life that's before us flows out of that relationship, that if we want the strength, we go to the relationship, because that relationship creates that strength. Not just strength, it also creates opportunities. Notice again at verse 32, these people who know their God shall be strong, and they'll carry out great exploits. It's kind of a really fun idea. The idea is like, okay, it's going to get darker, but you're going to be able to accomplish things. Like, God's going to create opportunities and spaces where you'll be able to, to, to walk in things that he has for you. Now, that's a fun reality, but it's always the reality of our lives. In Ephesians 2, it tells us we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Said simply, our relationship with him this being created in Christ, this growing in the likeness of Christ, it creates opportunities for us, spaces that God does this. And that's always true, but in difficult spaces, it would only become more apparent that God would give them the ability to live for him even in the midst of great evil, even in the midst of great times. In fact, not only would they be able to walk in these great exploits, but he says in verse 33, and those of the people who understand shall instruct many. So these people who understand, which is understand what? God. They know God. These people who know their God, 
they actually begin to walk into a place where they instruct many. It's an interesting thing, but Satan's work almost always creates this. When the church first began in the book of Acts, it gave it to us this way. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, and they were all scattered. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Oh, I wish I could say this better. So Satan is trying, the, the persecution's going, and, and that's happening, and it would seem like it's going to be so oppressive, and it really wasn't. I mean, instead of stomping out the, the church, it actually grew. Happened in Antiochus Epiphany. So he comes on the scenes, and he tries to eradicate Jewishness and eradicate the people of God, and it would look that way. I mean, if you were just looking at the world, you would think he did it. <laughs> I mean, there's like no serious followers of God, but there was an underground movement. There's an underground movement that those who knew their God were growing in the things of God, and they were teaching people what they couldn't teach publicly, they were teaching privately. I can tell you it happened during Rome. I talked about Domitian, who comes on the scene and says, I, I crushed it. I destroyed Christianity. It's gone. Little did he know the church was thriving in the catacombs, that in the, in the underground movement, the church was growing in leaps and bounds so that it eventually would just come out in, in the light. It happened in communist China as they came on the scene and, and tried to oppress the, the church. Instead of, you know, they said, we did it. We kind of stomped it out. They have an official church, which is kind of exactly Satan's ta tactics. But the, the true church thrives underground. And simply put, just under, that's always that way. Now, I don't know what God's going to allow in our days. I don't know. It could easily happen. I mean, it could easily happen. I don't know how you feel about what's happening in our world, but I can tell you this. It would not be hard. In, if things don't turn, it will probably begin by turning off social media for us and turning off YouTube. And so, you know, basically the, the government will come and say, hey, you know, if you don't agree to our ethics, if you don't sign this thing and say, hey, you know, we support, you know, equality of everything, we're going to cut you, cut you off from all of that, that's probably coming. I mean, again, I don't, I'm not a, a prophet, I'm just saying it happened, and then it might not be far beyond that, that they would demand it of churches. And, and I very easily could be arrested, and churches could become, unless you agree to what we agree to, you can't be a church. But I'm just going to tell you, if such a thing happens, then the true church will still thrive. It just would probably go underground. It would just probably keep going. And I guess I want to say it in a kind way. I hope you're one of those that would say, you know what, I'm, I'm unstoppable. I mean, I know, I mean, if, if we can't do it here, we'll do it there. And, and, and I don't even know how to prepare for that, except it's much on my heart right now just saying, God, just strengthen us, because if that's where we're heading. In the midst of that, it's also worth quickly saying, those times of persecution, true Christians would fall. I mean, they would find themselves both persecuted and even dying in the midst of it. He's really clear about how that says it. He says it in verse 35, and some of those of understanding, that is some of those people who know their God, they will fall to refine them, purify them, make them white until the time of the end. So this time of happening, and yet even in that, it's working for our good. I mean, I think about Peter, which he writes about in a time of persecution, right when they were getting it, ready to go into that Roman persecution that we spoke about. And he said, in this you greatly rejoice, though for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. And he's talking about heaven. He says, though you're so excited that heaven's coming, a brand new hope that we have, but if need be, we're going to go through trials, but even those are going to work for our good. So that the genuineness of our faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hey, I don't think any of us would choose it, but understand this, it actually really worked good. 
that those kinds of trials never really hurt the true church of God. It always refines them, and it works that, and he lets us know that happens in this season. Well, hear me again clearly. I'm not telling you that we have to pursue any of these things. I'm just telling you they're the outcome of the main thing. That he's telling us, okay, in this time that is an abomination of desolation, when the lies of the Antichrist, when this rage against God, when he's encouraging people to forsake God and and flattering those who do wickedly and, and causing persecution, the key to the whole thing is this knowing of God. He says, but the people who know their God. And then he tells us what that does in them and the good things that it does in them. But here again, me, the action point, the, the, the piece of application is knowing him. It's to know your God. And I love this because this puts it to us both so simply, but if I can say it this way, doably. There's not anybody here this morning that this couldn't work for you because God has made it so open. God has said, if you will seek me, you will find me if you search for me with all your heart. He has told us if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. So there's not anybody here right now that can say, well, Jim, I'm just not mentally there or I'm not you know, emotionally or I don't feel like I could actually have a relationship with God. Oh, yes, you can because he wants to have this relationship with you. It's why Jesus came. It's, it's what this is. And it becomes the thing that is the very nature of the relationship that God has for us. It's the most satisfying of realities but it's also the most rescuing of ones. I, I just, I'm, I'm think, trying to figure out how to say that differently than I'm saying it. See, I, I've talked to you about the abomination of desolation. I've talked to you about Satan and his work. And in one sense, again, maybe you're thinking, well, Jim, do we need to know all that? Do we need to know what Satan's lies are? Do we need to fully comprehend all of those things? No. I mean, no. You need to know God. You need to know these things are real. He's a liar and he's working, but this is what you need. And if you know him, if you know him, then that's the rescue. So here's what I'm telling you. If that's what you desperately need, and it begins with knowing him, it begins with coming into a relationship with him. Think about it this way. So we got this passage that says, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. So we've already read this a few times this morning. Satan's working. The Antichrist is coming. This is how he works. He lies to people. He deceives them, that that's what he's doing, but specifically gaining ground in those who are perishing, those who are heading towards an eternal destiny in hell. And it tells us about this, that these who are perishing, they do so because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved who did not believe the truth. So track, or just for a moment, they missed it because they wouldn't receive this, which God would give them that God would give you this morning to believe the truth. So I'm saying it this way. If you're here this morning and you don't have this, you don't have a relationship with him, maybe you go to church even, and you're one of those ones that think that that's enough, and you recognize, I don't know him. I don't know God. No, he would give you this. He's calling you to believe, to believe upon him, to receive this from him, because Jesus is that. He says, if you would believe the truth, what's the truth? Well, the truth, in essence, is Jesus, right? So Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So you need him. I mean, and that's what Jesus would bring into your life. And I'm just telling you, and I'm inviting you into a relationship with him. I'm inviting you into that space this morning, telling you this is what you need if you don't know him. 
to believe in him. But for those who know him, can I just continue that and just say that's what you continue to need? It would be life to you. It's the most satisfying of things. And it's the most rescuing of things. It's the action point for you this morning. Know him. Can we just be really simple about this? So how do you do that? Well, can I ask it to you this way? So if you wanted to know somebody else, if you really wanted to get to know somebody, like a friend, what would you do? You'd spend time with them. You'd listen to them. You'd you'd talk to them. I mean, in the most simple way, God is inviting you into relationship with him. That's not going to happen in five minutes. It's an ongoing, like, God, I want to know you. I want to know you. I want to know who you are. I want to listen to you. I want to talk to you. That's what I really, really need. And it's so life-giving. I'm just telling you, I love this verse because it just kind of highlights for us, yes, I mean, even outside of the Antichrist, outside of the lies, we need this because it's the only thing that satisfies. It's the only thing that saves. But it also rescues us in a world that is lying to us, in a deception that is growing. Your rescue is knowing God. Your rescue is the people who know their God will be so rescued. So that's what we want to invite you into this morning. So you can close your Bibles, your notebooks, and we're going to take a time to pray for that. We're going to just ask that God would draw us to Him. I'm going to give you a moment to pray. It might be that moment of surrender. You might just want to just, between you and God, just say, God, I need that. I I want to receive the love of the truth that I could be saved. And just quietly between you and Him, just ask Him to bring you into that relationship that Jesus came to bring. For others of you, you know Him. But if you're all together honest, that's not going as well as it ought to be right now. I mean, there's a weakness that maybe marks your life right now, and I'm just telling you, I don't know. I don't know if we're heading into difficult spaces in our nation. I don't know if we're heading into difficult spaces in our world. But if we are, I know what you need. And even if we're not, I know what you need. You need Him. He's what satisfies. He's what rescues. Those who know their God, that is what you need. You need to be one of those that it could be kind of put over you. This person knows their God. Then you can say, I know my God. That's, that's what I have. So quietly between you and the Lord, would you just pursue that? I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know what you need to talk to him about in that. But I'm inviting you into that pursuit where you would say, that's what I'm after. I, I, I want to be on a pursuit of knowing him. So you talk to God for a moment quietly. I'll do the same and they'll come back and close together and worship in just a moment.
God, thank you so much for your truth. Even in hard things, thinking about the abomination of desolation, Lord, thank you for telling us exactly what it looks like, what happened in the past, what will happen in the future, and yet what is happening in this mystery of lawlessness that is still permeating our world. Thank you for explaining. And yet, Lord, I pray that not only would you help us to see it, to recognize the lies of our enemy and the rage that he has against you and against this relationship that you establish with your people, but God, that you would help us to be those who overcome. And I thank you that in so many ways, the application of it is not complicated. We just need you. We need you. We, we, we need you. And, and Lord, I know that. I know that for every person here, that's what they need. And for those that don't know you, they need you. They're, they're perishing. They're, they're heading towards an eternal death. And that which rescues them is a relationship with you. That you came, you died, Jesus, to bring them into that. And we cry out for that. We pray for such a rescue that you would draw people to know you. God, then, for those of us who are yours, that's what we still need. It's not just how we began it. It's this relationship with you. And Lord, I just pray that you'd help us to be that, that you would look upon us and say, this people knows their God. Lord, that we would be a people who are pursuing you, growing in you, knowing you more. God, we need that. And I knew that that would be both life to us. It would be what would satisfy us but I love this morning, it's also what would protect us. It protects us from the lies. The people who know you are strengthened by you, rescued by you. God, help us to be those who are that. May you grow us in that. May you give us a heart for that, that we would be a people that know you. And I thank you for it. Thank you for making a door open, a way open for us. Now help us to live that. I ask for that right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May it be true of you. May it be true that you are one that knows God. May he draw you after that. If you have questions, if we can pray with you, we'd love to do that afterwards. But let's close in worship to that. Why don't you guys stand? We're going to close in a final song, both celebrating that, longing for that. But I just want to bless you in that, which really is the blessing of God. Lord, bless you and keep you. The Lord Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.